You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast for in-depth discussions of national security law and the history that gives you the context you need for real understanding. National Security Law Today is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, the editor of NSLT and a member of the committee staff. I'm joined by national security lawyers here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. These lawyers write NSLT and develop its content. All right, thanks for joining us. I'm Elisa. NSLT has created a safe space for national security law nerds like yourself to come and hang out. Um, Not unlike that chess club or debate club from your high school, and maybe even the wall in the gymnasium that felt so safe during those dances. We're glad you're here, even if you sometimes get rejected on first dates when you bring up the nuances of the National Security Act of 1947 as amended. Uh, But we feel your pain. In our world, you're a rock star. So let's get right into today's topic. It is, I would say, the topic of the day, reflective of the zeitgeist more than anything I can think of, and that is social media and its role in national security, uh, whether it wanted or sought that role or not. Um, And I'd like to set the stage, and I will say I am drawing heavily from what uh, Rachel, our guest, and Peter as well, said during the conference, which we've hyperlinked, by the way, for you to listen to before you listen to this podcast or after to get even more. Um, So major social media platforms, including Facebook and Twitter, and frankly, as of yesterday, all of them uh, were used by the Russian government to target users of those platforms in the United States for political messages that were intended to influence the 2016 presidential election. Um, Social media platforms have also been used by uh, the Islamic State uh, designated terror group to air beheading videos. Uh, that for whatever reason did radicalize people across the globe and many of them uh, did join ISIS after sort of engaging through social media platforms. Now at the same time these platforms have uh, served the public well in other areas. They've helped unite families and friends after decades of estrangement. Uh, People have found loved ones after major disasters like uh, hurricanes. Um, and they have been a place where people could receive government warnings and messages about diseases, natural disasters, pandemics, and they've even been used to amplify AMBER alerts on the positive side. And legitimate groups and parties have raised money to finance legitimate campaigns from individuals as opposed to political action committees or uh, corporate donors. And so in that way, they have been empowering. But we're really delighted to date if two guests who have given extensive thought to the national security implications of social media. Peter Singer, who is now with New America, who has, uh, Peter's written an excellent book on this topic, which is called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And he's written a number of other things, um, which are available through New America's website, and many of which we will hyperlink. Um, He is a political scientist who was educated at Harvard University as a PhD. Um, I will say, for what it's worth, I finished Peter's book in um, probably uh, two afternoons. It was that good, and um, I don't have time and have a wild man eight-year-old. We are also graced to have with us Rachel Levinson-Waldman. Make sure you get that in the right order. Um, Senior counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice, who has written extensively on the constitutional implications of law enforcement's use of and access to social media. 
And in addition, Rachel is the co-author of the Trump-Russia Investigation, A Guide, uh, and the Islamic Islamophobic Administration. Let me say vis-a-vis -vis the Trump-Russia investigations. If you haven't read it, read it. It is fantastic. It is very informative. It is probably one of the best things. I was just complimenting Rachel before we started. Get your hands on this. We're going to hyperlink it. Welcome to the show. We are so happy that you guys could be here. Thanks for having us. All right, Peter, I'd like to start with you. The title of your book is very provocative. Explain to our listeners who've heard some of this but not all, how is the state of social media right now like war? So the idea of like war is a bit of a play on words, like so much in this space. Uh, first is how social media itself, if we track the history of it, it began as a space for fun. Uh, it then became a space for profit, uh, and it remains those, but it also <clears throat> has become a space where um, pretty much every single political issue, uh, act of um, armed conflict, you name it, is also being battled out. So essentially social media is simultaneously a communication space, a marketplace, and a battle space. It's become a space of uh, akin to war, uh, where sides battle back and forth, uh, and they use tactics and doctrine and the like. The second, though, is that it's become almost a uh, form of conflict itself. If you think of cyber war as the hacking of networks, what we call like war is the hacking of people on the networks by driving ideas viral through a mix of likes and lies and the network's own algorithms. And one of the interesting things that came out of this project where you know we spent about five years researching the way that um, actors around the world, you know, everything from ISIS to the Trump campaign to Taylor Swift to teenagers, they kept coming back to the same set of tactics, even though they were seemingly wildly diverse. They had very similar goals online, and that meant they conducted the very same kind of tactics of like war. And so that was one of the other aspects of it, is that there are essentially a new set of rules, and the people that understand those kind of rules are winning their battles online to achieve their uh, goals offline. Okay, that's disturbing. <laughs> and... Would you be able to explain a few of the specific problems posed by social medias and more specifically some of the maybe more jargony terms like bots, sock puppets, and deep fakes and why the use of those particular things should concern us? Well, what you're getting at is uh, an essential issue in terms of the, the way these uh, platforms were designed and that's the repercussions that it's had on you know, our politics, our news, our, our wars, um, and also obviously the, the legal concerns that come out of it. Essentially, they were designed not to reward veracity, but to reward virality. Uh, they are designed to make us engage more and more and to try and drive ideas and rewards uh, those ideas that um, uh, engage us, um, that make us want to click, make us want to share. The problem is, of course, that doesn't, you know, whether they're true or not, doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, and so what we've seen is a variety of actors that understand this this nature of it, this, this design, and have reacted and essentially use it to sort of drive viral their own views, even if they might be um, 
into space. So um, one of the things that can what's played out in cybersecurity over the last several years is that it's incumbent on all of us, um, not just the tech geeks, but you know, people working in politics and law, reporters, private citizens, uh, corporations, you name it. We need to understand just the kind of the basic rules, the basic terms, because otherwise we're taking advantage of. So in this space, for example, you hear a lot of discussion around, um, let's use the, the illustration of Russian attacks on uh, the U.S. election. We say Russian trolls. What do we mean by that? It actually breaks down into some things you were talking about. It's um, a mix of sock puppets, which are real people posing as others online. So a Russian hipster sitting in the Internet Research Agency uh, in St. Petersburg who's posing as a, um, to use a real example, one of the more influential accounts was um, at Tennessee GOP, um, uh, posing as a Tennessee Republican. So a sock puppet is a real person posing as someone else online. A bot is a algorithm, it's software, um, and these are important in terms of kind of driving trends viral, um, you know, chirping away, making it seem like thousands, tens of thousands of people share that view. Um, deep fakes is something that looms. It's the application of AI in this space where you're using artificial intelligence to create hyper-realistic, uh, for example, imagery. So videos that are hard for a human to figure out whether they're real or fake. All these are different um, kind of, you know, tools that are used by actors to seize control and drive uh, information viral. And there's a history to it. Uh, you know, for example, if we're thinking about um, the use of bots, uh, one of the first entry points into American politics was actually during the 2012 uh, campaign um, where uh, Newt Gingrich uh, reportedly bought over a million, um, sorry, his campaign had over a million fake followers online. So it created the effect of what's known as astroturfing. So um, astroturfing is a play on the notion of grassroots and a grassroots movement. There's real people and they kind of, you know, they, they urge something. Astroturfing is when you create the sense of a fake movement. So uh, in his case, when his, um, you know, uh, campaign promises of a moon base by 2020 uh, didn't take off, um, it instead you have these more than a million followers that can kind of chirp away and make it seem like there's a grassroots movement underneath. And what, Peter, was it were all of these tools, bots, the sock puppets, deep fakes, part of the Russian effort? Yes. Uh, so we've, um, and if we look at, for example, the 2016 campaign, uh, you had um, sock puppet accounts um, playing on, for example, Twitter, uh, Internet Research Agency. We documented more than 3,000 of them. Now, sometimes people go, oh, those numbers sound really low. Um, well, the key is the impact of them. Uh, so go back to that example that I gave, um, that one single account at Tennessee GOP um, posing as a, a Tennessee Republican. That one account garnered over 120,000 followers, way more than I'm guessing you or I or most people listening to this. But actually, that wasn't its true impact. Um, it, on Election Day 2016, was the 7th most read overall, not the seventh most read of the more than 3,000 Russian accounts, but the seventh most read overall because uh, its messages were being echoed out by other people with hundreds and in other cases, uh, for example, um, notable person in the news, General Michael Flynn, hundreds of thousands 
uh, followers, or in, in some cases even millions of followers, uh, Donald Trump Jr. Um, that just one account ripples out. A different example is how things that play out in um, social media don't stay on social media. So a, uh, another account was um, at Jen Abrams, who uh, posed as a uh, young American who was um, interested in everything from Kim Kardashian to supporting Donald Trump. Um, she garnered, if I recall the numbers, uh, 44,000 followers, pretty good. Um, but her impact was actually way beyond that. Um, she was, I'm using she in quotation marks, obviously again a sock puppet fake account. Um, that account was quoted in a variety of other media ranging from uh, the New York Times to BBC mm-hmm. to USA Today to even Yahoo Sports. Uh, so this effect was um, massive, uh, just utterly kind of fascinating um, and obviously you know, pretty scary. Uh, those, those human-led accounts were operating, of course, not just on Twitter, but uh, everywhere from Facebook to Instagram to Reddit, you name it. Um, that was combined with, as I said before, the bot accounts uh, that could help drive things viral, so chirping away. Um, and then you had, uh, of course, the infamous ad buys, where um, Facebook uh, ads were bought and then used for micro-targeting. Um, so widespread campaign, uh, very um, uh, large scale in its impact. For example, over 140 million Americans half the American population uh, was exposed to the Russian propaganda um, just on Facebook. Uh, And again, noting kind of the the viral element of it. Another interesting aspect of the um, Russian campaign was uh, not just injecting its own information into our space, but also uh, elevating um, other voices, throwing its weight behind them. Uh, For example, again, the sock puppets and the bots retweeting others. One of the more interesting things was we can now document it. And so, for instance, uh, one of the key figures behind Pizzagate, uh, who's a member of the the alt-right, as it's sometimes known, um, he was among the key of all the accounts in the world that Russia decided to push. Uh, His account was one of those. Um, And so... What's interesting, of course, is these tactics are not unique to Russia. They've been used by, uh, used in the book uh, to illustrate ISIS uh, to, um, uh, we've seen them move into digital marketing campaigns. We've seen them even, uh, uh, groups mimic them. Um, For example, one of the more recent ones is Lady Gaga fans. That sounds odd to say, but Lady Gaga fans modeled uh, support for her um, after the Russian campaign, where they too created uh, fake sock puppet accounts and tried to drive uh, bad reviews of uh, rival movies to hers viral. Uh, they basically wanted to kind of poison uh, the, the, the well for her rivals in the same way that Russia tried to do to Donald Trump's rivals. All right, Rachel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say here. So, um... So is there a problem, constitutional or, uh, let's just pivot here for a second, constitutional or otherwise, with allowing these tech giants to close some of these accounts? I mean, it sounds pretty bad, right? Um, Particularly if they've been identified, let's say, as being associated with extremist messages, 
they're sock puppets or they contain false information. I mean, we, we should we should sort of put the brakes on here. I mean, some people would say, well, they're private companies. Um, these people are foreign government actors. You know, we ought to just we ought to just sweep them all away. Let's let's deal with it that way. What are the hazards? Yeah. So there is a ton to unpack here, and I'm sort of scribbling down notes to be sure that I get to everything, uh, which I probably won't. But I, I sort of want to back up and start with sort of the question, which I think is underlying the question that you asked, which is really how does the First Amendment affect these platforms, right? What is sort of the First Amendment landscape when it comes to these platforms? Because then I think that relates to questions of what could and should the platforms be doing when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, foreign accounts, accounts that are trying to interfere in the election. But it also relates to things like hate speech, right? Just sort of generally, how are the platforms governing the speech that shows up online? So starting first with that preliminary question of are are the platforms, are these sort of First Amendment governed spaces? And I think in some in some ways it's an easy answer, right? They're not a government actor. It's they're private companies. So no, the First Amendment doesn't come into play. But I think it's probably pretty obvious that actually the answer is more complex than that and that there are a lot of sort of tensions, I think, that are arising right now that that govern what that answer is, what that answer could look like, kind of going down the line. So so as I said, sort of the, the most basic answer as well, as we know, the First Amendment governs what the government can do, what government actors can do, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. They're not government actors, right? So if Facebook takes down my account, I can't sue Facebook for violating my constitutional rights. I might be able to say, hey, you violated your terms of service, you didn't give me notice, you know, I have a right to appeal, whatever it is, that might still be iffy whether there's a real suit there, but I can't really say you have violated my constitutional rights. That being said, there's sort of more of a gloss there at the same time. So in a case um, uh, just last year called Packingham v. North Carolina, the Supreme Court looked at a case where uh, there had been a North Carolina law about sex offender registration that prohibited sex offenders from using social media. And the Supreme Court looked at this to, to see sort of if this was um, too much of a violation of rights of people who've been uh, convicted of sex offenses. And the Supreme Court actually spoke with a, with a really sort of robust voice about the importance of social media and saying... Um, that this is a, a platform. They actually referred to social media platforms and the internet overall um, as the modern public square. Um, they can provide the, perhaps the most powerful mechanisms available to a private citizen to make his or her voice heard so that social media could be the most important modern form for the exchange of views. So this clearly positions social media as a public square, a place where people really do come to exchange views. That being said, being a public square doesn't necessarily mean that you are a public forum. And the public forum is really where that First First Amendment analysis would come into play. So has the government kind of so occupied a space or has the government um, kind of created a space that is akin to a public forum? So there's another case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now called Halleck, Manhattan Community Access Corporation versus Halleck, um, which isn't about social media at all. 
It's about a public access television station which fired a couple of employees. They sued, saying they'd been retaliated against, and saying that it was actually a, a constitutional infringement. The, the station said, no, we can't have violated your First Amendment rights. We're just this TV station. And the rejoinder is, well, actually, it was a TV station that was set up essentially by the government. It's channels leased by the government. And it was set up under the idea that there needs to be this kind of public access space. So that looks much more like sort of government involvement in what that channel looks like than there is government involvement in social media. I tend to think it's going to be, regardless of what the outcome is in Halleck, I tend to think it's going to be hard to kind of analogize to social media, although certainly some some commentators are suggesting that you could, and I know that there have been amicus briefs, for instance, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, basically saying to the Supreme Court, they didn't come in on either side. They came in to, to say to the Supreme Court, tread carefully here, right? Think about this issue, absolutely. Think about it in the context of this public access station. But think about the language that you're using. Don't, don't use language that might ultimately be used to suggest that that same doctrine, especially if you do decide that's a public forum, that that same doctrine applies to the internet because that's going to have a lot of consequences for how people communicate with each other. And also, and this is the, the other piece, how Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, make their platforms into the kinds of places that people want to come to, right? That's, so that's the other piece is, do they have the flexibility to come up with community standards that say there are kinds of speech that would be permitted under a First Amendment framework. They don't rise to the level of a true threat. They don't rise to the level of, um, you know, shouting fire in a, in a crowded theater. Nevertheless, these are the things that the people that come to our platforms don't really want to see. They don't really want to engage with. You know, we're, and I will be the first to say, and we have written a lot on this, there are a lot of issues when it comes to trying to regulate things like hate speech, terrorist speech online. I think that's an area that we're going to get into as well. But the platforms have made a judgment that in order for people to come spend time on them, they, they, want, they want these areas to be kind of nice places to spend time, for lack of a better word. Query whether they are a nice place to spend time, but they, you know, <laughs> there are sort of certain rules that you can put in place. Um, and if it turns out that it's a public forum, they will actually have much less ability to do that in much the same way that the government couldn't really say, well, I don't really like what you've said, and therefore we're going to prohibit you from saying it in public. So I think one of the interesting conversations, just to follow up with you uh, this week, is um, there have been some conversations on the Hill um, about actually somehow regulating the internet. And what I find interesting about that is obviously we're in a global digital economy. Just the logistics of that seem um, impossible, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but the second thing is I would be interested to get your take on that because I think one of the hooks must have been, correct me if I'm wrong, when you're talking about the Halleck case that the Federal Communications Commission does meet out those waves and those stations and I mean there are certain public good that has to come from receiving those licenses and so forth and it's it's a highly regulated industry with certain standards. And so in that way, it looks a little bit more like the government has to do with it. I do wonder if if the choice later is to regulate the internet, we're not gonna be having the same situation there. Um, and so that may be, uh, that may, then that is what Congress was talking about as recently as um, 
Monday. Um, yeah, there has definitely been there's definitely been a lot of pressure to to regulate the internet, and I think that's coming from a few different places. I think it's partly coming from you know what at this point are seem like at least weekly, if not more frequent, sort of revelations about what's happening largely at Facebook in terms of how they're treating customer data, what's being shared with whom, under what circumstances, do consumers know about it sort of on and on, right? So partly there's this kind of consumer protection and consumer privacy framework. And and certainly, I mean, there's been a big push to have better federal privacy legislation. That seems like an area where there could reasonably be regulation. I don't think I could speak to exactly what that regulation would look like. Then there's regulation that's sort of around, well, we, you know, there are kinds of speech on the platforms that we don't like and we want those to come down. And so, and we don't think that the platforms are doing a very good job at that. And so we want to step in and um, kind of dictate what that's going to look like. Quite honestly, for some elected representatives that are pushing this, that's coming from a narrative that the platforms are less friendly to conservative voices than to progressive voices, than to liberal voices. Um, There is not a lot of actual evidence to back that up. I think it's been a very effective narrative that's been pushed that somehow the platforms are kind of intentionally doing things to disadvantage conservative voices. That doesn't appear to actually be the case. There may be some function of the algorithms that's doing that, but both... Not only does it not seem to be anything uh, intentional, I think it's really questionable whether it's even having the effect that sort of this narrative suggests it is, that that, that somehow um, those, those commentators are being disadvantaged. And when you get to a point of saying, for instance, there's a law in Germany right now that says to the platforms, if there is um, speech that's basically designated terrorist speech and you're notified about it, you have to take it down within an hour. And if you don't, you face huge, huge fines. I mean, it's really like just an immediate axe on this and and for the platforms. And it seems quite obvious that the outcome of that is going to be that the platforms are going to way overreach in terms of what they take down because they they don't want to be subject, you know, in the best of all circumstances, they'll take down speech before somebody even notifies them of it and they're subject to this one hour rule. And then certainly if they're notified, why not take it down? Otherwise, if they if they make a misjudgment in terms of taking it down, that there's a pretty minimal um, kind of sanction that's going to come along with that, as opposed to making a misjudgment and leaving something up, which could make them pay millions of euros in fines. And so I think there's a real concern that if we see regulation around speech, the inevitable outcome will be the platforms becoming much, much more cautious and much, much more kind of small C conservative in terms of what they allow on the platforms. We're going to end part one of our conversation with Peter Singer and Rachel Levinson-Waldman here. Please join us again in two weeks to hear part two of our conversation. Next week, we'll be doing an episode on national emergencies with Jamil Jaffer and Paul Rosenzweig. Look for the Black Letter Law and articles about the topics we discussed today in the show notes or on our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. 
and thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We'll see you again next time. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.